Showcase Sundays today on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. everyone, I'm David Alt. You're listening to the world's largest and longest-running showcase of modern audio drama, The Sonic Society. I'm here with my co-host Jack Ward, who is worrying over his next pedagogical grammar quiz. Hi, everyone. I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to the middle of April. I've said before, <laughs> and I will say it again, but this week will be a lovely respite to the ears and an informative piece of American lore. Yes, that's right, Jack, as we welcome back another phenomenal feature from the fertile imaginations of John Barber, Mark Rose, and Reimagined Radio with a mighty span. Reimagined Radio explores early examples of dramatized news events and uses this inspiration to create its own dramatization of the opening of the Interstate Bridge, linking Portland, Oregon and Vancouver, Washington, across the Columbia River 106 years ago, on the 14th of February 1917. And our feature today begins right here on the Sonic Society. The bridge is open amid cheers from the crowd. Clanging bells, tooting automobile horns, whistles from boats and mills in the vicinity, and the firing of a salute from government war. Welcome to Reimagined Radio, a program about radio storytelling. I'm Jack Armstrong. With each episode, we combine dialogue, sound effects, and music to engage your listening imagination. This episode is no different, and here to tell you about it is John Barber, producer and host. Thank you, Jack. Hello, everyone. Welcome. As Jack told you, Reimagined Radio is a program about radio storytelling. But more than simply telling stories, we explore their backgrounds, histories, connections, and inspirations. This episode of Reimagined Radio, A Mighty Span, explores some early examples of dramatized news events. We offer examples from the two best radio programs of this kind, The March of Time and You Are There. Then we create our own dramatization of the opening of the Interstate Bridge, spanning the Columbia River between Portland, Oregon, and Vancouver, Washington, February 14, 1917, an important fixture of the Portland-Vancouver community. Reimagine Radio originates from KXRW-FM, Vancouver, Washington's community radio station. We thank them for their support. And we thank you for joining us as Reimagined Radio presents A Mighty Span. On February 14, 1917, the Interstate Bridge was officially opened between Portland, Oregon, on the southern side of the Columbia River, and Vancouver, Washington, to the north. Our reimagined story of what happened and what you might have seen and heard had you been there is an interesting bit of radio storytelling. 
But before we tell that story, we should provide some background and context. In the 1920s, the first decade of radio broadcasting, radio producers sought to define the new medium and attract listeners. But what types of programs would make for compelling listening experiences? Music, reading of literature, and drama were early radio favorites. News was more difficult. The lack of international telephone networks made live, on-the-scene radio news reporting difficult. Location recordings were impossible. Radio audiences were accustomed to getting their news from reading newspapers. How to get them to listen to news on the radio? One answer was to read the news. An early example of this approach was Pop Question. Begun in 1924, this was the first radio quiz game. The 15-minute program was heard on WJZ Radio, New York City, until 1925. It was created by Britton Haddon, who co-founded Time magazine with Henry Luce in March 1923. Although no recordings are known to exist, one imagines contestants being asked questions about current news events drawn from the pages of Time magazine. Beyond reading, another approach to radio news was recreation through dramatization. The most memorable radio news dramatization program was... The March of Time. On a thousand fronts, the history of the world moves swiftly forward. The first episode, broadcast March 6, 1931, began with the announcer describing the intent of the program. Tonight, the editors of Time, the weekly news magazine, attempt a new kind of reporting of the news. The reenacting as clearly and dramatically as the medium of radio will permit some memorable scenes from the news of the week. From the march of Time, from every corner of the world, come news facts about politics and science, people, time and religion, art and economics. There is one publication which watches, analyzes, and every seven days reports the market human history on all its fronts. It is the weekly news magazine, Time. Tonight, with the March of Time, a new kind of reporting of the news, let's review some of the dramatic events of the week. The March of Time was the pioneer news dramatization series, and it is often cited as the best such program ever to be heard on radio. The format for each episode featured between seven to eight reenactments of memorable news events, each 90 seconds to four minutes in length. A fast-talking narrator provided terse comments between the reenactments. This narrator was known as the Voice of Time. The earliest voices were Harry Von Zell and Ted Husing. The best-known voice was Westbrook Von Voorhees. This excerpt from the October 5, 1934 episode features a dramatized interview by Von Voorhees with Bruno Richard Huppmann, arrested and executed for the March 1, 1932 kidnapping and killing of the 20-month-old son of Charles and Ann Morrow Lindbergh. Let's have a listen. Tonight, the editors of Time, the weekly news magazine, raise the curtain again on their new kind of reporting of the news, the reenacting of memorable scenes from the news of the week. 
from the March of Time. The Bronx, New York. Bruno Richard Hoffman, you are indicted for extortion, suspected of kidnapping and murder. I am innocent. For two years, an aroused nation has sought the kidnapper and murderer of Charles Augustus Lindbergh, Jr. Then a fortnight ago, Bronx police arrest Bruno Richard Hoffman, carpenter, one-time German machine gunner. Bronx County indicts him for the extortion of the $50,000 Lindbergh ransom. But still, the state of New Jersey and the nation wonder, does the evidence prove Hoffman committed the kidnapping and murder? The handwriting on the first ransom note, left on the windowsill of the baby's room the night of the kidnapping, has been identified in the criminal laboratories of the Department of Justice as your handwriting. I do not know anything about it. In your house was found a German-American dictionary with the pages turned down where appeared the most difficult words from that note found on the grip. I am innocent. The ladder used to enter the Lindbergh nursery was constructed from lumber taken from a lumber yard in which you once worked. I do not know. I was never in Hopewell. A kick of nails exactly like those which held the ladder together was found buried in the earth of your garage. I know nothing about it. It is believed that the person on that ladder wrenched his leg when it broke. You limped on a bad leg all the summer after the kidnapping. It is rare coarse strains I had. Your footprints correspond to the imprints left beneath the baby's window that night. I am innocent. I know nothing about that. On the night of the kidnapping, did you meet a man named William C. Dennis on a road near Hopewell? And did you borrow from him a tire pump? That man claims you did, Bruno Hauptmann. I never saw him. A chisel found near the Lindbergh home bears the same trademark as the tools found in your garage. I know nothing about it. Bruno Richard Hoffman, in the trunk in your house was found a detailed roadmap of the country around Hopewell. I know nothing about it. Do you know, Bruno Hoffman, that whoever received the ransom money identified himself by two special pins taken from the baby's crib and a child's blue sleeping suit? Do you know that $49,000 out of the $50,000 of ransom money have been traced to you? The man Fish, who died in Germany, gave me the money. I am not guilty. I will be able to explain everything. I know nothing at all about the Lindbergh kidnapping. I am a decent man. I ask the world to withhold its judgment until the case is over. Now, here's a sample from the January 18, 1937 episode of The March of Time about the arrest and trial of Frederick E. Peters on charges of forgery and fraud. Peters impersonated famous persons to buy expensive items, always writing checks for more than the sale amounts. He pocketed the change from his purchases and disappeared, eluding arrest for 30 years. This week in the New York courtroom of U.S. Commissioner Garrett W. Cutter. Will the clerk please read the charges? Federal Court of New York. Charges of impersonation of federal officials and others, of forgery and fraud, are hereby preferred against one Frederick E. Peters, alias Alfred E. Smith, alias George Bernard Shaw, alias Ulysses S. Grant III, alias William Randolph First, alias Charles Evans Hughes, alias Woodrow Wilson Jr., alias John Jacob Astor, alias... into custody at last comes the kindly distinguished gray-haired man who for 30 years has evaded police in 13 states and two score cities, whose impersonations of the great and near great have cost U.S. merchants unknown thousands. One for Frederick E. Peters, the title of the nation's most extraordinary impersonator. This week, making a rare appearance under his own name and held in $15,000 bail to face a 30-year sentence, comments impersonator Peters. I suppose it had to happen someday, but I'm sorry Mom had to find out. 
And as a relative of Frederick Peters in Ohio? We're sorry to hear Frederick's in trouble, but we're glad to know he's alive. Not long ago, Fred's ma got a telegram saying he was dead and asking for money to bury him. If you ask me, old Fred sent that telegram himself. 1937, March on. As communication between distant parts of the world became more practical, the march of time dramatizations were replaced by live actualities, news reports and interviews provided by time reporters. In 1945, the March of Time series ended. Two years later, in 1947, another program of dramatized news events CBS is there, picked up the legacy of the March of Time and carried it forward. Created by Goodman Ace, noted for Easy Aces, a long-running serial comedy, early episodes of CBS is there began with the announcer intoning... Columbia asks you to imagine that our microphone is at this famous event. All things are as they were then, except for one thing. CBS is there! The program name was changed to You Are There, May 2nd, 1948. Each episode relied on verified historical facts, sound effects, and the professional CBS News staff. John Daly, Richard C. Hodelet, and Don Hollenbeck, noted for their overseas reporting for CBS during World War II, and other distinguished reporters described what they witnessed on scene. For example, here is a sample from Episode 2, The Storming of the Bastille, broadcast July 14, 1947. The Bastille is a medieval fortress in Paris, used as a political prison by the French monarchy in 1789. Revolutionary citizens captured the Bastille on July 14 that year in protest of royal authority and the monarchy's abuse of power. Paris, July 14, 1789. CBS is there. This is John Daly in Paris. I'm standing outside the sentry booth in the square in front of the Bastille on this sweltering hot day of July 14, 1789. More than 50,000 citizens have been kept waiting here since 10 a.m. Paris time, 5 a.m. New York time, by the Marquis de Launay, governor of the Royal French Prison Fortress. The crowd is demanding that the governor surrender the Bastille so that the people may have the arms inside to defend themselves against the king's mercenary troops who are at this very moment surrounding the city. The people of Paris are angry and restless. After years of indignities, hardships, and a struggle for a voice in their own government, King Louis XVI called a national assembly at Versailles to write a new constitution. The hopes of the people for recognition were raised high, only to be rudely shattered a few days ago when the king suddenly, without warning, threw 30,000 troops around Paris, mostly foreign mercenaries, and threatened to suspend the National Assembly by force. The people are boiling with anger at this betrayal of their hopes, and they are also desperately afraid that the king's troops may invade the city, or at the very least attempt to force them into submission by starvation. In a frantic hurry to gather arms with which to defend themselves, they have assembled here before the Bastille the only remaining royal garrison in the city. Four times they have sent delegations inside to demand its peaceful surrender of the governor. Three times they have returned not only empty-handed, but also with a warning to disperse. Now, the fourth and what may be the final delegation has been inside the Bastille for over an hour. If the governor still refuses, there's no telling what may happen. The people don't want bloodshed, but they are grimly determined to have arms and the Bastille, which to them is a symbol of tyranny. 
and they're carrying every conceivable kind of weapon right now that they've been able to lay their hands on. I can see pikes and sticks and hatchets. Others are carrying axes and old swords, and a few even have muskets, which they seized this morning from the Hotel des Avalis. There are also several cannons, but whether they can take the Bastille is another matter. I'll ask the young Parisian lawyer to tell you what he thinks about that. His name is Jacques Danton. He's standing by the sentry booth with me at the foot of the outer drawbridge. The booth, by the way, is empty. The guard was taken away by the people earlier, enabling us to set up our CBS equipment here. Monsieur Danton, the Bastille is surrounded by two moats. It has a ten-foot stone wall, a garrison of Swiss mercenaries and old French soldiers, and it literally bristles with cannon in the towers. Now, if the governor refuses to surrender, it would seem almost impossible for the people to take it. The walls of the Bastille, monsieur, are no stronger than where the walls of Jericho. Now, that red and blue cockade you're wearing, uh, Monsieur Danton, I see that almost everybody here is wearing one. Does it have any special significance? It is the colors of Paris, but we call it the cockade of liberty. Now, tell me, sir, haven't I seen you at the Palais Royal with Monsieur Simoulin, Robespierre, and Marat? That is possible, monsieur. We are friends. Well, aren't you uh, more than that? Aren't you all leaders of the radical group here in Paris? Uh, some people say so. Right. Well, where are your friends today? Are they with you? Are they down here? Yes, they are out in the crowd somewhere. And that crowd, sir, seems rested. It seems to have a bad temper. Temper? We are sick of financial ruin caused by war, corruption, and extravagance. Falling on those least able to bear it. We are no longer willing to carry the load our fathers endured. We look to political changes that will make all men free and equal. Brothers of one great human family. Well, some of your countrymen, Monsieur Danton, have told me that our own American revolution has had some influence on the spirit of the French people during the past six months. Um, Monsieur Daly, we admire your young country very much. It has given the people of Paris hope for better things. Not beyond the grave. But here on earth, now, today. Thank you, sir. Monsieur Denton is walking away now, losing himself in the crowd. A huge, brawny figure of a man, black-browed with a powerful face, the heavy shock of black hair, which he keeps brushing away from his eyes. There's still no sign of the delegation's return from the Bastille. We thought they were ready to come out when we went on the air, but there seems to be more delay. We're still waiting here at the sentry booth, and we hope you'll stay with us. My colleague, Ken Roberts, is out there in the crowd somewhere with a portable transmitter. So I'm going to turn the microphone over to him. Go ahead, Ken. Come in, Ken Roberts. This is Ken Roberts. I'm standing approximately dead center of the Place de Bastille, right in the very heart of this massive mob of people. It's hot here. The heat here is terrific. The temperature must be at least 110. Regardless of what happened here this afternoon, July 14th, will probably be remembered by the people of Paris as the hottest day of the year crowd here around these stretches, way back up to Rue Saint-Antoine, as far as the eye can see, into the very heart of Paris. There are all kinds of people here, shopkeepers, middle-class citizens, and many of the city's 200,000 beggars. There are even some women and children. Most of them are poorly dressed and undernourished, reflecting the conditions under which they've been living for so long in these narrow, crooked, and dirty streets of Paris. They're standing and moving about in small groups. Some are hanging out of the windows, bordering the square. I've been, I've been looking around here, trying to find some people who can speak English, but I haven't had much luck, except for one man. His name is Monsieur Latude. Monsieur Latude. It's rather unusual for anyone in Paris today to speak English. Have you lived in England? Is that where you learned it? No, Monsieur. I learned English in the Bastille. In the Bastille? Oui. I was a prisoner there for 35 years. 35 years in prison? You are astonished, Monsieur. Well, yes, you didn't tell me, Monsieur Latude. I had no idea. May I ask, how did it happen? Why were you in there? I, uh... 
was charged with insulting Madame de Pompadour. She was the favorite of King Louis XV. Well, did you insult her? No, it was not true. But uh, what can one do against the king's letter de cachet? Letter of the cachet? Isn't, isn't that the paper the king signs committing a person to the Bastille without trial, evidence, or judge? Oui, monsieur, that is the letter de cachet. The king signs it in blank and he leaves the name of the victim to reveal in. And then he gives these blanks to his friends to use as they see fit, is that it? That is it, monsieur. You put yourself in that place. If anyone tries to make love to your wife or annoys you by loud talk at a dinner party, all you have to do is just write in the offensive person's name, hand it to the authorities, and voila, that is the last you hear of him. Well, is that all you did, monsieur Latour? Is that why you spent 35 years in the Bastille for nothing? For nothing, monsieur. Well, monsieur Latour... What is it like inside the Bastille? How do they treat you in there? Uh, that is a long story, monsieur. But I will tell you one thing. Once they put me into a dungeon. The cell was covered with a foot of water. I was chained to the wall, and they kept me there for 40 months. Hey, we, the Bastille is equal. It should be destroyed. The ball of Bastille! I understand how you feel, monsieur Latour. Now, tell me, please. Who was it who taught you English in the Bastille? It was another prisoner, Major the White from Ireland. He is still in there. You see, I escaped. You escaped? Well, tell us about it, Monsieur Lajeu. I never heard of anybody escaping from the Bastille. Well, Monsieur, I... I... Just a moment. Excuse me, please, Monsieur Lajeu. I can see a signal from the battlements. A man is up there waving to the crowd. Something is evidently going on. Perhaps the delegation is coming down. I'm too far away, so I'm going to switch you back to John Daly at the outer drawbridge. John Daly, the signal from the tower is coming from Monsieur Rosier, the leader of the people's delegation. He's waving his hat. He's holding up his hand for attention. The crowd is quieting down a bit. Now, apparently, he's about to say something. I'd like you to hear it if it's possible, so I'm going to lift our CBS microphone high in the air. The delegation will be out immediately. Monsieur Rosier has disappeared from the tower. The people's delegation is on the way down now, and I'll have the details of this surrender for you in just a few minutes. A feeling of enormous relief seems to have swept the square. I don't think anyone here, merely in his heart, thought he could take this fortress by storm. And if you were here with me, you could see what I need. The eight circular towers of the Bastille, each 70 feet high, bristle with cannon. The entrance is defended by two yawning moats. 25 feet wide and 25 feet deep. And even if the people could drag down the drawbridges and hurdle these moats, they would run into the murderous fire of the guns manned by the French and the Swiss garrison. But there's no chance of anything like that happening now. This powerful fortress, which has played host to nearly every famous man in France at one time or another, played host to the man of the Iron Mask, to Marshal Richelieu, to Cardinal de Rohan, to Voltaire, Rousseau, Montesquieu, is about to fall into the hands of the French people for the first time since it was built in the 13th century. By the way, you can probably hear the chains rattling as the inner drawbridge comes down. The inner drawbridge is down now. There are the delegates. They are coming over the bridge. Five men in black hats and long black frock coats with Monsieur Rosier in the lead. They're walking across the inner court and the outer drawbridge is coming down. But the first one is being taken up again. I don't quite get the meaning of that. For if the Bastille is to be surrendered, both drawbridges should be down. But we'll find out about that in just a moment. Now the outer drawbridge is down and the delegates are walking rapidly across the bridge. They seem to be in a great hurry and this crowd is pushing me around here. They're pushing me forward onto the drawbridge. Monsieur Rogier! Monsieur Rogier, into the microphone, please. Monsieur Rogier! Monsieur Rogier! 
Something has happened. Something is wrong. Rosier has just shouted that the governor has not surrendered the Bastille. I'll repeat that. The governor has not surrendered the Bastille. Monsieur Rosier is right on the edge of the bridge with me. Now some of the people understand they're pushing back towards the Place de la Bastille. But the ones behind them who haven't heard are still pushing forward. Attention, Cab, people play. Attention. There's a lot of confusion here, and I'm caught in the mob. On arrière, on arrière. The Bastille, c'est le pas encore en Oh, no use. I just can't hold them. They push Rosier and the delegates inside, and we're being forced across the bridge, push them off into the courtyard. The people are still coming over. There are about 200 with me, and they're screaming and yelling. The guards are raising the guards of robbery. People are spilling off into the moat or jumping forward into the inner court. Both the drawbridges are up, and we're jammed into the island courtyard between the two moats. There is water on both sides of us. We're cut off. Gee, hot the The governor has turned the guns to the Bastille and the people here in the court. They're helpless. So am I. If these British never jump stop those bullets, he's shooting them down like cattle. Men, women, falling, screaming. This is horrible. The mob in the square outside can't do a thing. They can't get to us. They've opened fire on Bastille, though, but their fire is useless. The bullets are smacking into these British timbers like so much hail. We're trapped here between the two drawbridges, but at least a couple of our men are up hacking away at the chains of the outer bridge. The people are being captured, cut down. They're all on the ground, turning, twitching in agony. They're killing them, all of them, every one of them. There's hardly a person standing up. This is unbelievable. I can't believe it. It's ruthless, inhuman. Our only hope now is to get the outer drawbridge down and get some help from outside. Two of our men have gotten up on that drawbridge, as I told you, and they're hacking away at those chains. You can hear it probably. They cut it through. There it goes. The outer drawbridge is down. The outer bridge is down. And the mob from the square is coming across to help us. They're pouring in by the hundreds, by the thousands. The Bastille is stormed. The people are stunning the Bastille. The people are firing up at the parapet, trying to pick off those Swiss guards. The bullets are flying all around us. Oh, that was close. The Frenchmen are shooting at the Bastille from across the square and up on the rooftops. The garrison, the guards, are answering with volley after volley of fire from the fortress. I can see some wagons downloaded with hay, and the people are bringing them up here. They're going to set fire to the governor's house, here on the island, between the two drawbridges, and they're doing it. There are three cannons. Three cannons are being bailed into place. The people must have taken them this morning from the Hotel de Barbillard. They're training them on that inner drawbridge. They're going to blast it down. The governor's house is starting to burn. Smoke is coming up from it. And now... Are in position. They ought to go off at any minute. No, no, something's changed. The firing inside the Bastille seems to be slacking off a bit, but the people in, out here are still firing. They're mad with rage at the sight of the bodies of their own people who were shot down by the governor. Now the firing from inside seems to have stopped. The governor's house is burning, all a flaming inferno. Smoke is shooting up in big billows. Oh, someone in the parapet is waving a white flag. He's shouting something. I, I can't hear what he's saying. There's too much racket. But the drawbridge, the inner drawbridge is coming down. The bridge is down. The Bastille is really surrendering this time. The gates are being opened. The people have stopped firing, and they're going wild. They're springing over the bridge into the fortress. I can't tell them, but Ken Roberts is coming up with his portable transmitter. Go ahead, Robert. This is Ken Roberts. I'm inside the Bastille in a huge inner courtroom, quite high. I'd say about 20 feet. 
and 40 by 40 in length and width. There are no lights, no windows, a stone floor and walls. Fine torches stuck into the walls cast an eerie light over the wild confusion going on in here. The people are still pouring in. Some have seized the keys and already gone down into the dungeons to release the prisoners. The mob in here is shouting threats at the terrified garrison. The soldiers have lined up on two sides. Old French soldiers on the right, swift mercenaries on the left. They're all trembling with fear. They're shouting at the top of their lungs, the Bastille Serrant, the Bastille Serrant. The Bastille is tremendous. The governor is in the middle of the room, surrounded by the mob. He's wearing a gray front coat, a red cross of Saint Louis, no hat. Somebody just snatched his gold-headed sword game from him. But the governor is taking it all. Standing there, grim and defiant, he's got a lot to pay for. The brutal massacre of those people out there in the courtyard. Now, now I've worked my way up to one of the old French pensioners, and I'm going to ask him why the Bastille surrendered. Monsieur, pourquoi la Bastille a été rendue? Nous l'avons forcé. Nous l'avons pas tiré sur nos frères. C'était les mercenaires suisses. He says it was the Swiss guards who fired. The French soldiers refused to fire on their own people. They forced the governor to surrender. Le gouverneur, le gouverneur voulait décharger son pistolet dans ton autre Il voulait faire sauter la Bastille. Nous l'avons empêché. He says the governor wanted to blow up the Bastille, but they stopped him. And now, now the mob has seized the governor and the soldiers. They're dragging them out of the Bastille. Monsieur Rosier! Monsieur Rosier! Est-ce que vous les amenez? They're going to take the governor and his soldiers to the Hotel de Ville to be tried before a people's court. Just a moment, there's a prisoner. The first one, he must be a prisoner. He's old, very old. The hair is down to his feet, and it's white, completely white. I can see where the chains have been cut from his ankles. He's dragging a chain with him, blinking. He's holding his hands above his eyes. I guess he's not used to the torchlight. I'm going to speak to him. What's going on, monsieur? What's going on? Monsieur est parvenu. Quel âge avez-vous, monsieur? J'ai 80 ans. He is 90. How long in prison, monsieur? Combien de temps avez-vous passé à la Bastille? Il est trop tard. Trop tard. 30 years in prison. Je vous félicite, monsieur, de votre opération de la Bastille. Oh, merci, monsieur. Est-ce que Louis XV et Madame de Pompadour diront des deux This is incredible. Monsieur Tavernier named six men. Counting himself, that makes only seven prisoners in the Bastille at the time of its fall. This is John Daly again at the sentry booth by the outer drawbridge. I've taken the air away from Ken Roberts because I've just been informed by our CBS studios here in Paris that the news of the Bastille's fall has already reached the king and his troops in Versailles. And we'll switch out there in just a moment. First, a last look at this turbulent scene. Part of the mob is dragging the governor and his garrison up the Rue Saint Antoine to City Hall, the Hotel de Ville. The people here are rolling barrels of gunpowder and chatting across the bridges. They're passing out guns, thousands of them taken from the Bastille arsenal. They're working feverishly against time because they're desperately afraid of the king's reaction. But now, for an on-the-spot account of that reaction, I switch you to Versailles, Harry Marble reporting. This is Harry Marble in Versailles. King Louis XVI has just ordered his troops withdrawn from around Paris. The order was issued just a few minutes ago, after his majesty was informed of the surrender of the Bastille. The king was in the palace when the Duke de Liancourt, a member of the royal household, brought in the news. When de Liancourt told the king that the Bastille had been stormed, his majesty inquired, is this a revolt? And the duke replied, no, sire, 
It is a revolution. The king then, without his usual bodyguard, without even his hat, but accompanied by his two brothers, ran out of the palace to the National Assembly on the edge of the palace grounds. There he made an unprecedented appeal to the National Assembly. He placed himself in the hands of the people's representatives, men he had only yesterday threatened to destroy. He urged them to help him ensure what he termed the salvation of the state. The king said, I await this from the National Assembly, from the zeal of the representatives of my people. The king also announced that he would go to Paris tomorrow and personally conciliate the people. He has also appointed the Marquis de Lafayette, head of the new National Guard, and the Marquis will escort him into Paris tomorrow. Lafayette, who helped us, the American people, win our independence a short time ago, has been playing a major role during the last eight years in France, helping his own people win a voice in their government. Today, he is vice president of the National Assembly. It's a particularly happy day for him. He's standing right here beside me. Monsieur de Lafayette, what does this mean today for the people of France? It means, monsieur, that the spirit of the right of man, which was born in France and nurtured by your country, has now returned to Europe. The king's decision to permit the National Assembly to continue with our work of writing a new constitution is the first concession he has ever made to the people. Whatever happens from now on, France, like America, has set its course on the road to democracy. There can be no turning back. Thank you, Marquis de Lafayette. And now, for the people's reaction to the king's announcement, we return you to Paris and John Daly. This is John Daly. I'm standing in the Place de Grave, the city square in front of the Hotel de Ville, the city hall. The unexpected news from Versailles has turned Paris into a frenzy of celebration. The people are dancing and parading in the streets, no longer in fear of their lives. They are shouting, long live liberty, long live France. The governor of the Bastille has been executed for the massacre of the 171 men and women murdered by his guns this afternoon. Several of the soldiers have also been executed, and one was thrown into the same. The heads of the governor and his soldiers have been placed on pikes and are now being carried around the city. This strikes a rather ghoulish note in the celebration here, perhaps, but if you knew the suffering of these people and what they've endured for the last 50 years at the hands of such despots as the Marquis de Launay, you perhaps would understand, if not condone, their actions. Tyranny always breeds violence, and to the people of Paris, the Bastille with its drawbridges and dungeons was a symbol of rotting tyranny. The excesses committed will perhaps soon pass, but the ideals behind them are certain to live on and to grow in the hearts of the French people here today and in the hearts of their children. Oh, here come the paraders once again, and they're singing. I recognize the tune. It's Ça Ira, an old French band to which revolutionary words have been set. They're singing about hanging all aristocrats from lanterns. The streets of Paris, you know, are lighted by lanterns swung on ropes stretched across the roadway. But let's listen to the singing. women in the crowd is waving a large key, a very large key. One moment while I ask you what it is. Manville! Manville! Jessica! La clé de la Bastille! Oh, she said it's the key of the Bastille. And she says she's going to give the key to Lafayette tomorrow when he arrives in Paris. Washington! Washington! Our General Washington and Lafayette's former commander. He's going to give the key of the Bastille to Lafayette so that Lafayette may present it to our own first president of the United States, His Mightiness George Washington. The crowd is still singing. I hope you can hear them. They're that song with the On this 14th day of July, 1789, the day that will undoubtedly go down in history... 
Reimagined Radio introduces you to new and different forms of radio storytelling. The Fusebox Show is one you should know about. Fusebox. Well, to each their own pet wonder meal, I always say. Yeah, you do. And, uh... People are starting to wonder about you. Starting? <laughs> Look at me, Doc. I'm a pinhead. And I, I, I sound like a cartoon chipmunk. <laughs> you, you, you do sound adorable. Catch Fusebox the first Wednesday of the month at 12.30 p.m. Here on KXRW 99.9. Learn more wherever you get your podcasts or at the Fusebox Show website, thefuseboxshow.com. You're listening to Reimagined Radio. I'm John Barber, producer and host. Our episode is A Mighty Span, which imagines a live radio broadcast of the opening ceremonies for the Interstate Bridge, February 14, 1917. This single-span bridge was the first to connect Portland, Oregon, and Vancouver, Washington, across the Columbia River, and only the second to span the river after the Wenatchee Bridge built in 1908. The term interstate described the bridge's location at the border of Oregon and Washington and its function to carry traffic on the Pacific Highway from Mexico to Canada across the Columbia River. The content of a mighty span is factual. Reports and editorials published in Washington and Oregon newspapers provided historical details about the opening ceremony, the setting, the speeches, and what was seen and heard. The container, however, the radio broadcast, is fictional. There was no radio coverage or broadcast associated with the bridge opening ceremonies. In truth, there was no radio technology available in Washington or Oregon in 1917. This is KDKA of the Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company in East Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We shall now broadcast the election returns. Operated by engineer Frank Conrad, KDKA became the first licensed radio station in the United States, October 27, 1920. On November 2nd, KDKA delivered its first scheduled broadcast returns from the 1920 presidential election between Warren G. Harding and James M. Cox. Leo Rosenberg announced that first broadcast, and it's his voice you heard in this recreation, the voice of the first radio announcer. One of Portland's earliest radio station licenses was granted to the Portland Telegram newspaper. Their first broadcast was November 21, 1921. The Oregonian was granted the 98th radio license issued in the United States and began broadcasting as KGW on March 22, 1922. Vancouver's first radio station, KVAN, began broadcasting in 1939. Singer-songwriter Willie Nelson was an announcer for a short time before launching his musical career. Inspired by The March of Time and You Are There, Reimagined Radio conceived a mighty span as a live radio broadcast from the lift span of the Interstate Bridge, where a temporary platform was erected in the roadway. State and local leaders delivered speeches there. The ceremonial ribbon was cut. 
the bridge was officially opened. Automobiles and pedestrians moved across the new bridge, back and forth between Oregon and Washington. Like with episodes of The March of Time and You Are There, the purpose of A Mighty Span is to engage listeners in an historical event, to simulate being present at the center of the news, to experience through speech and sounds the spectacle and community pride associated with the opening of the interstate bridge across the Columbia River. Let's listen to A Mighty Span. This is your announcer on the Interstate Bridge. Today, Wednesday, 14, February, 1917, this new bridge will be officially opened. This will close the final gap in the Pacific Highway, running from British Columbia through Washington and Oregon, and then onward through California, ending at the Mexican border. Construction on the Interstate Bridge began in 1915 with bond monies approved by voters of Multnomah County in Oregon and Clark County on the opposite shore in Washington. Today, less than two years later, the bridge is finished at a cost of $1,700,000, including the approaches, lights, fences, and other features. It is a dismal morning. Gray clouds hover overhead, but crowds have been gathering all morning at both the north and south ends of the Interstate Bridge. The first to span the mighty Columbia between the cities of Portland, Oregon and Vancouver, Washington. And only the second to span the river since the Wenatchee Bridge, completed in 1908. It is 11.30 now. The opening ceremony will begin shortly. Our microphones and mobile reporters stand ready to provide you in-person listening experiences of this historic event. A mobile unit is at the Oregon end of the bridge to the south. Reporter Cameron Cameron is there. What can you tell us, Cameron? Thank you. As you say, I'm at the south end of the bridge, just near its landing on Hayden Island. Thousands of people are gathered here, and nearly 300 automobiles backed up for more than a mile. And they're all waiting to cross the river on this new bridge. The crowd here is joyous for the bridge to open, but perhaps more so for it to replace the aging and struggling ferry service operated by the Pacific Railway's Power and Light Company. The ferry, City of Vancouver, has been overcrowded and citizens in both Portland and Vancouver have long advocated for a bridge to connect their cities and states. Today, that dream will be realized. Oh, in the distance, we can hear the Portland Police Band marching up to lead the procession across the bridge. Thank you, Cameron. This is indeed a joyous day for Oregon and Washington, as the dream of the last half century is realized and these two states are linked. The new bridge is 3,538 feet in length across the river's main channel. It is comprised of 13 steel spans, with three measuring 275 feet in length and the remaining 10 measuring 265 feet. One of the 275-foot spans can be lifted upwards 136 feet between towers, providing clearance for river traffic below. 
The steel bridge was built atop pile caps. Concrete slabs surrounding the tops of wooden pilings driven into the bedrock at river's bottom, approximately 70 feet below. With me now is Mr. Joseph Joseph, superintendent of construction for Porter Brothers McCreary and Willard, the company who constructed this marvelous bridge. Mr. Joseph, you must be feeling mighty proud of yourself right now. I will breathe a big sigh of relief today at one o'clock when the bridge opens to traffic. That means my responsibility for the bridge is over and that it has been accepted by the Bridge Commission. Mr. Joseph, you were responsible for supervising the making of 16,696,000 pounds of steel for the interstate bridge, floating it across the river to the construction site and its incorporation into this magnificent structure. All this you accomplished without an accident and at a tremendous cost savings to the citizens of the counties at either end of the bridge. How did you manage this? Uh, <clears throat> uh, well, sir, uh, this bridge is an important building project as people will depend on it every day from this day forward. It is an honor to be involved in the realization of this dream. Thank you, Mr. Joseph. Let us go now to the north end of the bridge where it joins the downtown streets of Vancouver, Washington. Reporter Kerry Phillips is there. Kerry, what can you see and hear from your vantage point? I am standing at the north approach of the Interstate Bridge, just next to the handsome granite drinking fountain erected here by the daughters of the American Revolution and the sons of the American Revolution in Washington. The monument was erected in the memory of the pioneers of the Oregon Trail and was completed just days before today's bridge opening ceremony. Around me are several thousand people and nearly 200 automobiles lined up all over downtown Vancouver awaiting their turn to drive across this new bridge. The docks in the streets are crowded with onlookers. Two companies of soldiers from the Vancouver Barracks are gathered here. In the distance, perhaps you can hear the North Bank Band. Thank you, Carrie. Our listeners may wish to know that the paved roadway of the Interstate Bridge is 38 feet wide, with a 5-foot wide walkway. This is believed wide enough to accommodate traffic in both directions. Down the middle of the roadway is a dual-gauge track bed, to accommodate the different track gauges of the Portland and Vancouver streetcar lines. Before the bridge, Portland offered a Vancouver streetcar line which ran to Hayden Island. From there, passengers boarded a ferry owned and operated by the streetcar line and continued across the river to Vancouver. Now, the electric streetcars will run throughout the day, back and forth across the Columbia River. The ceremonies are scheduled to begin promptly at 12.30. E.E. E. Beard is the master of ceremonies. Just now, I can see some activity at the Vancouver end of the bridge. Uh, Carrie, what can you tell us? Led by two companies of soldiers from the Fort Vancouver barracks, people and automobiles are beginning to proceed onto the bridge, moving their way towards the lift span. The North Bank Band provides popular tunes, and the mood here is quite excited. The signal has been given. Crowds of people and automobiles are moving on to the interstate bridge from both ends. What can you tell us from the south end, Cameron? 
crowd on the south end is moving onto the interstate bridge, led by two companies of soldiers from the Fort Vancouver Barracks. They arrived early this morning, marching across from Washington. And they're followed by the Portland Police Band, and then a line of, I would guess, nearly 300 automobiles. It's quite a procession as they all move onto the bridge. I am standing at the middle of the bridge's lift span. This point is the boundary between Washington and Oregon. A temporary stage has been erected here. Stretched across are two ribbons, secured in the center by a bow. The bridge itself is decorated with many flags. They provide a festive air to an otherwise gray day. I can hear the bands approaching from the north and south. The bridge is filled with people walking. There are so many, they fill the entire width of the roadway. People begin to gather here, crowding around the platform, anxious to see and hear. Mr. E.E. E. Beard, Master of Ceremonies, steps onto the platform. He is joined by a number of officials and members of the Bridge Commission. Mr. Beard raises his arms in the air, asking for silence. He welcomes the crowd and introduces Governor James Withicombe of Oregon, Portland Mayor H. Russell Albee, and Vancouver Mayor Milton Evans. Oh, they shake hands all around. Today's program will be very short, no more than 15 minutes, to allow interested parties to traverse the river on the new bridge and then return to their respective cities for the afternoon's business. Each speaker will be limited to a short statement. The first is given by Multnomah County Commissioner Rufus Holman. We have a microphone near the platform and can hear what he says. We are celebrating the completion of a great bridge spanning the Columbia River at this historic place. Let us consider this bridge not only a necessary thing of great utility, but a monument commemorating the unity of interests between Oregon and Washington. This is an enterprise demonstrating what we can do by cooperation. Next to speak will be Oregon Governor James Withicombe. His remarks will be brief. This is a notable event for all the United States, and not Oregon and Washington alone. This bridge connects one of the greatest and most important highways in the country. Forty years ago, when I crossed this river here in a boat, I wondered if the time would come when it would be bridged. Let us take full advantage of our new benefit. Portland Mayor H. Russell Alby is the next to speak. Let us hope that this Siamese link, that is to carry two great commonwealths, will draw us closer together, and that that silver line, the Columbia River, will be a tie that binds, rather than one that separates us. Next is the mayor of Vancouver, Milton Evans. The people of two cities are mingled here, celebrating an event which means the uniting of the two, commercially, industrially, and socially. And now we hear from Edgar B. Piper, editor of The Oregonian, the newspaper which has been so instrumental in developing and maintaining support for this project. The old barrier between us has been spanned. 
In crossing the river today, the mines saw the Vancouver of old, the historic barracks, Indians going and coming, hunters carrying their quarry on their backs to the markets, missionaries seeking a haven in the forests, and immigrants, some starving, but all helped by that father of all this country, John McLaughlin. Connect up these events with the present day scene and note our marvelous progress. Oh, certainly inspiring words from Mr. Piper. And you have heard them here first, before reading them in print in his newspaper. Well, such is the immediacy of radio. Nearly to the end of the ceremony now, we hear from Frank Branch Riley, member of the organizing committee. Our committee uh, joins proudly in this celebration of an achievement uh, for which, uh, for four years, we struggled incessantly. Now, at the same time, we today uh, realize that no longer are we needed to persuade suspicious legislators and and unimaginative taxpayers that this this bridge shall immeasurably add to our wealth and importance. Break down an, an ancient and formidable barrier between two neighboring peoples and, and close the, the last gap in the Pacific Highway to, to meet the needs of uh, increasing industrial traffic and, and tourist travel uh, over the great interstate trunk road. This bridge shall stand as a, an imposing vindication of all the extravagant predictions of the early advocates. The final speaker today will be Mr. Samuel Hill, well known here for leading the effort to build a scenic roadway through the Columbia River Gorge. Mr. Beard introduces Mr. Samuel Hill, calling him the Roadmaster of the Northwest. The crowd waves small flags as Mr. Hill takes the platform. Thank you, everyone. Today is a glorious day. Today is Oregon's day, her birthday. But more than that, she celebrates an event not alone for the benefit of Clark and Multnomah counties, but for Oregon, Washington, California, and British Columbia, for all of the United States, and for all of the world who shall use this highway for all time to come. Today, the last link is forged in the chain that binds together the whole Pacific coast, from British Columbia to Mexico, and now one can pass dry shot over an uninterrupted highway from Vancouver, BC to the Mexican line. When Mr. Hill noted today as Oregon's birthday, he was speaking to the fact that it was 58 years ago today that Oregon was granted admission as a state to our great nation. Certainly, that is cause for celebration. But as he noted, today we are celebrating around the country. Surely, it is a widely held belief that this new bridge will help Washington's quest for admission to the Union. Now for the opening of the Interstate Bridge. The crowd draws closer around the platform in the center of the roadway. Two young girls step onto the platform. One is Miss Mary Helen Kiggins, daughter of prominent Vancouver businessman J.P. Kiggins. The other is Miss Eleanor Holman, daughter of Multnomah County Commissioner Rufus Holman. They each take an end of the bow, tying together the two strands of ribbons. 
as Commissioner Holman rings the bridge bell. Both young ladies pull their ends of the bow. The ribbons fall aside. At the same time, Miss Louise Miller, daughter of Clark County Commissioner Abe Miller, and Miss Enid Carson, daughter of Clark County Commissioner M.E. Carson, and Walter H. Evans, Jr., son of District Attorney Walter H. Evans, and Arnold Muck, son of Multnomah County Commissioner A.A. A. Muck, pull ropes that hoist flags atop the lift span. Well, no doubt it will be crowded late into the night by thousands of persons wishing the distinction of having crossed the new bridge on the day of its opening. Oh, the overcrowded ferry boat, struggling for years with problems, toots a mournful salute. The ferry will close today. Its business ended with the opening of the new Interstate Bridge. You're listening to Reimagined Radio. I'm John Barber, producer and host. With each episode, we explore radio storytelling using voice, sound effects, and music. It's a mechanical pig, one of two said to exist in the world. Have you seen the second one? Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. People trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They're falling like flies. Reimagined Radio. Nothing to see, everything to hear. Heard the third Monday of every month at 1 p.m. Sundays at 6 p.m. on KXRW 99.9 FM. Visit our website for more information and listening opportunities. Reimagined Radio. This is Reimagined Radio. Our episode is A Mighty Span, a recreation of events surrounding the opening of the Interstate Bridge, spanning the Columbia River between Portland, Oregon, and Vancouver, Washington, February 14, 1917. To provide context for this bit of radio storytelling, we reviewed examples of how early radio producers, faced with technological challenges, providing news reports to listeners, created dramatic recreations of important events. I hope you enjoyed our episode. This is a production of Reimagined Radio. Content curation and script by John Barber. Music composition, sound design, and post-production by Mark Rose. Graphic design by Holly Slocum Design. Our announcer is Jack Armstrong. Reimagined Radio is produced with support from KXRW-FM, Vancouver, Washington's community radio station. This is John Barber, producer and host. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us again as we continue exploring radio storytelling. This has been a production of Reimagined Radio. Our radio broadcasts are heard on local, regional, and international community radio stations. For on-demand streaming, point your browsers to our website, Reimagined Radio. That's all one word, no punctuation, dot net. Thank you so much for listening. And please join us again for another episode of Reimagined Radio where we'll continue our exploration of radio storytelling.
And that's this week's show. Please check for reimagined radio show notes and links at sonicsociety.org. Until next time, for Jack Ward and myself, I'm David Alt, and have a lovely week. He's a force, not of nature, but of something more primal than that. He's the acid taste of vengeance you can't quite swallow down in a town that's besieged by fear, an unbreathed regret. Others say he was a man who wouldn't rest until all the pain in the world was fed back to those who minded out of others. He's only known by one name, from county to county, in the hours past dawn, and in the haze-filled air, you'll see him walking towards you if you keep secrets, if you harm folks. He's the drifter, and he won't stop till sorrow's end. A weird western series from Jeffrey Billard starring The Drifter. From Audio Groovecats and the Amigo Collective. Coming 2023. Only on Mutual. 
with Episode 1, Before a Wind.